each of us has our own reason for coming to a retreat. There's a kind of uh, story we tell ourselves that motivates us to come, to make the sacrifices involved to be here. And I'm always uh, fascinated by how those stories organize themselves. And I've asked a number of you in the last couple of days why you're here. And I've had a series of answers from uh, I would like to be more centered in my life to I'm following a, um, a spiritual impulse in myself. I want to quiet the mind. I want to learn to cope with the pain or to cope with my fear. Or I want to be a better person. Or I've never done meditation. I want to learn meditation if I can. Or I want to be a meditation teacher. So all these reasons. One person said, because I feel so nurtured when I'm here, so taken care of by the staff and by the land, and it heals me. So many reasons. All bring us here together. I attended my first spiritual retreat back in 1971 when I was 25 years old. And I did so more or less by accident. It was a, uh, a, at a yoga ashram. And I went there for a completely other reason. And found myself spending five days practicing Raja Yoga, something I'd never heard of at the time. And that began a long um, history of of going to a retreat and going back into the world. I was very, very active in the world for uh, a number of years to the level of what some people refer to as a workaholic. And yet always I was carving out time to go to a retreat and had a very intensive practice, very intensive practice. I had many of those years practicing three hours a day at home despite being a workaholic. So I've, I've had the ups and downs of this experience we call retreat. Now, uh, as I've looked at that experience from some distance, it seems to me that there are two different reasons that, uh, in a broad sense of that word reason, two separate motivations that uh, bring us to a retreat. One is the idea of retreat and return or renewal and return. And the other is retreat in order to practice that which we're committed to. Very, very different experiences. And yet both of us are motivated by a combination of those two reasons and every single one of us, for sure, have some combination of that as the experience of what actually happens at a retreat. So in the idea of retreat and have renewal and then return, there is a sense of going somewhere to Spirit Rock or to somewhere else and having some set of experiences, maybe being quiet, maybe hearing the Dharma, maybe just resting in a way we don't at home, or maybe caring for ourselves in the way we don't at home, and somehow being renewed by this experience, renewed energetically, renewed in self-image, renewed in terms of a vision, and going back to our lives. A very kind of separate, 
I go over here and these good things happen and then I go back to the battle of my life. One experience, one that I think most of us are familiar with. The other kind of experience, the other kind of motivation is where we go to retreat not for something different but something more of that we wish to have in our regular life but the retreat provides an opportunity to achieve that, to experience that in a way that our daily life with all of its pushes and pulls and conflicts doesn't allow. So in that mode, it is the actual practicing that is the reward, not something we take back. Very different. And we each have some of that experience where we come here and in fact we acquire a little bit of awareness or a little bit of loving kindness and we become that to some degree and when we go back into the world we are that we don't go back the same person we are in fact transformed or better said we are more of our ourselves our genuine selves by the practice by what happened there so it is not a sense of renewal but a sense of becoming and that becoming is continuous whether we're in retreat or in our life. Now, for most of us, when we, we first start this process, my first uh, attending a Vipassana retreat was in 1983 in Barrie. And uh, I had had, at this point, 12 years of, of this Raja Yoga practice. And very intense practice, lots of uh, stillness of mind, and great deal of concentration and uh, uh, many things that come with that kind of intense concentration that were very pleasant and, and, and in some ways inflating. So I, I go to my first Vipassana retreat and here is, here is someone with a whole different set of instructions with a complete different uh, uh, perspective as to how, how one is transformed which required that I surrender everything that I had practiced for 12 years. And it was in the worst of possible circumstances. It was the dukkha of all retreats. Everything was wrong for me. The weather, the, uh, the circum, there was all these circumstances, there were all these accidents, quote, that happened while I was there in terms of just the facilities. Everything went wrong. And yet, there was something that I touched there in terms of this very process of bringing back that I couldn't let loose of. Even though the, this particular teacher was the, if you were going to create the wrong teacher for someone with my experience, it would have been that teacher at that time. Just perfect. And despite all of that, I, I, I could not let go of the experience. For the whole time I was there, I did not have one positive sitting. There was not one minute of a positive sitting. And the entire time, I'm not exaggerating, I was really quite marveling at it. Because it was, it was, I was going, now this is truly phenomenal. Is this really possible? So, uh, so the, 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 the sense of, of there being something there to this was so strong. And then gradually what happens to us all is at first, our, our first retreats, 
or mostly we get some kind of renewal and then we go back and we get beat up by our lives and we go, oh, I need to quiet my mind. I need to take care of myself. So we go back to retreat and we go, oh, I'm here, you know, da-da-da. And we maybe have some idealistic things that we're hoping to accomplish, but mostly we just need a little nourishment and, and a little returning to our true selves. And then we go back into our world and this process goes on and on. But then at some point, it does start to switch because there's enough things that we've brought back into our daily life that our daily life starts being informed by, by those uh, perceptions, by those awarenesses. And so suddenly, there is a bit of practice to our daily life. And then when we go to the next retreat, yes, we certainly need as much uh, re- re- replenishment of the soul as possible, as much renewal as we can get, we're really here to practice. That's a maturing of the stage of practice. And for some of us, it happens really fast. For some, slow. It will happen to each person in your own time. And then it goes to the next level where we go back into our lives and we're somewhat centered in this idea of practice in our lives. And I'm not talking about the time on the cushion. I'm talking about the time at the the office, the time driving on the highway, the time when we're with our significant other, when we're with our children. There's, There's this sense of practice is present. It has penetrated deeply enough into the core of our being, into our nervous system in such a way that well, yeah, life is sort of like this as opposed to just the, the regular battles that we have been accustomed to. And then for some people, at some point in the process, this marvelous thing happens and the envelope flips the other way and life is practice. Every moment is practice. The retreat is just a safe place to do it more effectively. But it's all practice. We forget over and over again every day, sometimes for days or even weeks or even months at a time. Ah, then we remember. No, this is... I'm not about getting that promotion, uh, getting that person to say I'm right, to give me the recognition I feel I deserve. No, I'm about something else. It's this kind of intent towards a wholeness. That's the purpose of my life. And so it goes. And this is particularly relevant in relation to tonight's topic, which is working with the five hindrances. Those factors that arise that obstruct our practice, our ability to do the practice. The hindrances are mental factors, mental states that arise that cause a disruption in our concentration, in our awareness, or a distortion in our concentration and our awareness. And when this disruption or distortion occurs, we are unable to see things as they are, as Ajahn uh, Sumedho likes to say. So we can't see things as they are because these hindrances have arisen and they're causing a distortion or a, a disruption in our concentration and our awareness. So... In this particular practice, in this tradition, what we in fact are practicing is what we call choiceless awareness. And uh, you're going to be hearing a a talk about this on another night. But it is this living moment to moment with just what is. 
deeply accepting just what is in this moment, being free from having to uh, somehow fight what is the truth of this moment. And for this practice to work, we have to be able to see clearly what is. And so when these hindrances come up, they in fact are obscuring. We can't see clearly. Our practice is challenged. Now, if, uh, if you had a name like hindrance, you would know you needed a good PR person because gives a very bad reputation just to be called hindrance. But in fact, they are a little more complicated than that. They are a little more subtle. And as we deepen in our practice, as we mature, as we become more senior students, we start to see more and more subtle levels of the hindrances and see how they in fact become our allies. And in fact, over a period of time, something very mysterious starts to happen in terms of the hindrances. Not in a permanent way, but in a moment-to-moment way. So we begin, in terms of dealing with the hindrances, by first just being aware of them, being able to recognize them when they have arisen in our mind. Maybe recognize them five minutes after they've come, or two days later, but more and more and more and more instances and faster and faster as soon as they arise or shortly after they've arisen. So that's, that's the heart of the practice. That is the mindfulness practice. But then gradually we learn certain ways to work with the hindrances and we start to do that. And that's sort of an interim period of our practice when we're, we're taking this tool or that tool and trying to work with a particular hindrance. And then gradually there's this realization that, oh, just doing the practice, that's the best tool of all. Just showing up on the cushion, just showing up in my life, that's the really great practice. As Jack said the first night, if we will just put ourselves on the cushion, the the Dharma will do the work. So there gradually comes this experience that if I do the practice, something unexplainable Something occurs, some unfolding happens on its own without my actually having done anything. It is something that I receive and I didn't do anything. There's a kind of, uh, of, of a cleansing of that, of, the, of that hindrance that occurs in its own accord without any reaching towards it. It just occurs simply by our intent to practice. So... At at different stages in your practice, the experience of this can be quite different. Many of you are new. This is your first time retreat. Some of you are in that interim state of having been here to or some retreat like this two, three, four, five, six times. Others of you have been doing this for 20 years. You've, You've had 20 years of coming to retreats. So each of you will have a different experience. And when you're considering this, when you're engaging in this experience of the hindrance, you engage it from your life experience as a practitioner, knowing that your life experience is the perfect thing to bring to bear in this moment in dealing with them. Now, before I describe the, or enlist the hindrances, I want to say three things that I'm going to say over and over again about the hindrances that are so important. The first is to repeat 
that the hindrances are mental factors. They are mental factors. They have no solidity. They have no solidity. They are mental factors. They are impermanent and ever-changing. The second thing to remember is that they are not you nor yours. They are not you nor yours. Let loose of them now. <laughs> the, the, the third thing to remember before you even engage in the area is that comparing mind, judging mind, is your worst enemy. As soon as it shows up, there's trouble brewing. <laughs> trouble brewing. So let's keep those in mind as we go through this experience. The, the five hindrances in their classic descriptions uh, began with all sense desires. So that means anything that comes in through the five sense gates of hearing, tasting, touching, uh, 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 feeling, and seeing. And then the sixth sense, which is the mind itself. So these sense gates, all desire that comes in through those sense gates. So that can be uh, a, a desire of a, a, a taste in terms of food. It can be a desire for a, a, a certain sound or lack of sound. It can be a desire for a, the, the feeling of cool temperature rather than on the skin rather than hot as it was today. Or it can be an idea that you're very fond of or a, a kind of mental process that you are attached to that is just as real as hunger in the belly and has all the same characteristics in terms of the way it acts as a hindrance. Uh, the second hindrance is called aversion. And this is everything from irritation to anger to ill will that uh, can include fear, hatred. These are the kinds of uh, mental factors that arise that uh, in, in their negative feeling, their, their, uh, their, their uh, distaste, their uncomfortness, that causes a reaction, that causes this kind of distortion or disruption in our concentration and in our mindfulness. Now, with uh, the uh, attachment and aversion, I have found it helpful, and some of the people I've worked with have found it helpful, to bring a kind of awareness to attachment and aversion that they are in a feeling experience in the body initiating energetic states. Initiating energetic states. That is when, uh, when uh, 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 some sort of uh, attachment, some sort of desire arises in the body, there is a movement that's elicited by that arising. Even if you are not thinking about it, an easy thing is to watch yourself eating your favorite dessert. You've said, okay, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to have any more of this dessert. I'm full. But you keep eating. Where does that come from? Where does that energy? Who lifted the hand? Who opened the mouth? That's the, that's the initiating energy of, uh, of desire. And so uh, as we go through this, we'll, it, we'll see, particularly for more senior practitioners, that you can start to look at that 
and get some bearings when you're on the cushion and in your life by that energetic state that's reflected in the body. Now, the next two are sloth and torpor and restlessness and worry. Is there anybody in here who needs a definition of either of those? <laughs> Again, for some of you, you may find it helpful to view these two mental factors as being responsive energetic states in the body. Not initiating, but responsive energetic states. Very different. Very different. So they are not the... They are not what lifts the hand. They are a response to something. And we'll look at that much more closely as we go through. The last of the hindrances is doubt. And this is something I think we're all quite familiar with. Doubt is a very tricky, very hard to understand hindrance in my experience in part because the Western mind has become so elaborate in its ego structure, so uh, uh, constructed through these last centuries that the way doubt uh, uh, appears and, and manifests itself is very, very challenging to work with. Energetically, you might think of it as being an environment in which energy is doing something. So in terms of your referencing your own body, you might think of it as being uh, uh, an environment. So when big doubt is present, there's kind of an, an, uh, there's an environment in your body. And so everything that arises will, or tries to arise or, or doesn't arise is being shaped in some way by that environment. The environment is interacting with all of that. And again, um, um, we will look at that more closely. And for some of you, that won't seem relevant yet, but maybe two years, five years from now, it will be or maybe never. So, what is this thing about sense desire? First of all, have you noticed how present it is here at this retreat? The retreats are set up to simplify your life. Everything that can be peeled away to simplify your life without causing a distraction kind of suffering has been peeled away. So it's as simple as your life is ever going to be until you're on your deathbed or something. And yet, every time you turn around, your moment is being shaped and conditioned by the arising of desire. Watch yourself as you uh, arrive and check in. There's, uh, there's this, all this anxiety about wanting. There's this wanting that starts to arise. Well, am I going to get a good room? What, can I avoid having a roommate? Da, 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 da. All of this wanting starts coming. You're just flooded with wanting. And then you come and put your cushion in the meditation hall. Oh, well, I really want to get the right seat for me. Oh, I wish that one wasn't taken. You know, oh, that's when I, now will I be behind a, what if some what if someone tall sits in front of me? And then I won't be able to see. Well, can I hear from here? You haven't even started meditating. You're already at sea. <laughs> and so we all are. 
And this, this is uh, uh, so amusing to watch because sometimes at retreats, the, the, the wanting is so strong that I've sat here and watched people come in and literally move everybody else's <laughs> cushions so they can have the seat they want. And I'm going, well, I don't know if that would be called skillful action. <laughs> and, and that's how strong wanting is. And I, uh, there is just no awareness because desire has come so strong that other factors, factors that they would very much care about or they would not be here at the retreat, have been flooded out <laughs> by this arising of desire. And another point that you can watch this desire is notice in the morning when you leave the hall and you start down the hill, it's not just gravity that adds that little extra zoom. <laughs> and then you're standing down there in the line, you know, and if you're one type of person, if, if you're... You're sort of you're sort of leaning forward because of your own greed. If you're another type, maybe it's this you're worried about there's not going to be enough or something. So you're sitting there having your experience, right? And but then suddenly you feel this wave of something else. That way, it's, it doesn't feel like you. You can sort of feel this sort of wave of wanting, but it's not yours because you're already coping with yours. You're making this whole movie in your head. But this other wave, and it sort of irritates the nervous system. That is how powerful desire is. Desire from someone five people back can wake through and hit you. So, uh, uh, desire it traditionally uh, was described as like colored dye in, in the, the water. And you can't see clearly because there's these beautiful colors in the water. And you're fascinated by the colors, but you can't penetrate beneath the surface because the water is so attractive. And um, the, the traditional uh, uh, ways of remedies for this as an affliction with, with the things like moderation of, of food and sleep to, uh, to uh, focus on impermanence, these sorts of remedies. But uh, in general, I think the most powerful thing you can do is to do your mindfulness practice and not worry so much about those other things. Just do the mindfulness practice. So when you, when you find yourself standing in line or sitting here on the cushion and desire has, has arisen, you want the sitting to be a certain way. You, you want, you're, you're, you're pain-free right now. You're wanting it to stay pain-free. <laughs> know this? Just meet them and go, oh, bring the mindfulness. Oh, this, this is desire. Bring that mindfulness to it. Put the mindfulness up against it. And then immediately watch how three things will start to happen. One, judging will arise. Ugh, Desire. Like it's some horrible thing, right? And so now you've gone on to complicate your problems with that. So the first is the judging will arise. And then the second thing is it's me and mine. And then the third is I've got to do something about it. This whole chain of events, all of which are from a misunderstanding. You don't have to do anything about it. It's just desire. It's just arisen. Someone uh, was saying today in one of the groups that they're, they're trying to let nature be their teacher. And I was uh, talking about how to bring that in to the hall, onto the cushion. So 
when if, if you think of nature and you think of a tree and a storm comes in and it's a ferocious storm and it's tearing limbs out of the tree, the tree doesn't do anything different. It just keeps on being a tree. It's how well it does with the storm is in part defined by the circumstances of its roots, the kind of tree it is, and so on. But it doesn't add anything. It's just there with the storm. So in the same way, when desire arises in you, why add anything? It's just a storm that's blown in. Be present with it. It too will pass. So the, the first is to bring the mindfulness. The second thing to do is to recognize these reactionary states of, of judging, of me, mine, to do something about. Then the third thing is to bring the mindfulness into its full bloom, which is to bring alertness, I use the words alertness and curiosity, to, to experience, oh, this is desire, what is it? What is its parts? I wish to see it clearly, without judgment, without trying to change it, to truly know it. In the truly knowing it, you see the truth of it. It's lack of permanence. It's lack of a, a solid self, unchanging self, and, and the dukkha nature of it, the, the painful nature of it. All on, your, all, all on its own, just by examining. You don't have to do anything extra. And I use the words alertness and curiosity because alertness is that factor that notices. And then curiosity is the factor that actually examines. Again, Ajahn Sumedho has said in a recent retreat that he likens it to having that uh, a doorman. If you have a doorman that's alert in, in the sense that he knows that someone's going in and out of the building, that's good. But if, if he has no curiosity, some, someone wearing a hood walks out with this big sack on their shoulder and they never, he never notices, right? Because there's no curiosity. And I use the word curiosity rather than investigation because investigation has this distance sounding to me. Oh, I'm over here and I'm going to investigate that as though I'm separate. And curiosity is like the way a child experiences. So a child becomes alert to something and it, 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 it's curious about it. It puts it in its mouth, it hits it, it, it puts it in its ear, it does everything it can. It'll rub up against it. That's the, that's the flavor that I'm talking about in terms of working with the hindrance. Now, what happens in this kind of mysterious way uh, as in any given moment with, with the, the arising of desire and it being a strong factor, but it's, it's, it's worked with. It transforms itself into non-attachment. And this has happened to you over and over again in your life, but you've probably not particularly noticed. You've been in a fight with a good friend. You can't believe that they disagree with you about Clinton. You know, you just can't believe it. Or that, that they would have done this that hurts your feelings so much. And you're, you're just, you're thinking all these horrible thoughts about them. And then suddenly you realize, this is my friend. I love this person. I don't care that much about that. And you just drop it. All of that, all of that wanting to have it your way, wanting them to see your point of view, to do what you wanted, you just drop it in an instance. You just let go of it. And it's, it's happened to you many, many times in your life. You've just not noticed it. So this is that transforming quality. So it is a hindrance, but it is a hindrance in the way of being a teacher. It is not a hindrance in the way of being despicable, to be gotten rid of, 
to be ashamed of, to, to judge, to be reactive to. It's just, it's just a mental state that's arisen. Aversion is the twin of attachment. As a matter of fact, in the literature, you'll come across reference to the terrible twins. And these are pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and ill repute. They always come together. It's one of those sad facts of life. <laughs> it is, in fact, what makes dukkha, dukkha. Because they always come together. So this is, in fact, the first of the noble truths. The, 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 the joined at the hip of these, of these twins. On retreat, uh, there, uh, the, the uh, aversion is equally visible with uh, an equally felt in the body as is the arising of desire. In some ways, uh, more so on the cushion, but uh, equally so in terms of uh, a closer watch. So, for instance, you're down there at the lunch line and you're washing your dishes and it's your turn and you get up there and one water is all clean and you, and this other one's just yucky water, and the person ahead of you got the good one, there's this aversion arise in you. It just comes. You're sitting there and your knee starts to hurt. The knee's hurting, and, and that, it's, it's discomfort, discomfort, but then there's this whole other thing that comes that's, I don't want this to hurt. I've got to do something about it. Da, da, da. This whole uh, explosion of, of reactions occur. That's aversion. Or someone uh, does something, you felt as though they got in front of you at the lunch line, that they, at the last minute, scurried ahead of you. You'll feel this complete irritation, this moment of condemning them, as though that moment of their doing that, which was just a moment, if it was true, which is, highly debatable because we know what state we're in. If it's true, at most it was just a moment of, of wanting mine arising in another human being who just like you only wants to be happy and peaceful. And yet there's this whole <laughs> condemnation that will arise. This is the nature of aversion. Now, traditionally it's uh, described as being like boiling water. It obscures the vision by the, the turmoil of the, of the boiling water. And um, um, the traditional uh, remedies will be things like reflect on karma and the effect of karma. Therefore, you would not get anger because that anger is going to come back and so on. Or to uh, practice loving kindness. But uh, I would urge you to, in fact, just do the mindfulness practice. So... Same thing. You recognize it when it comes. Oh, this, this, this is aversion. You see those three reactions start to happen. Ugh, bad, bad. It's mine or it's me and I've got to do something about it. You let those go. You investigate. And when you investigate, you bring with your investigation the loving kindness and the compassion. Because in, when there's a, a lot of turbulence, Loving kindness and, and compassion, you can think of it as uh, like uh, cushioning, the, the blow of, uh, to, to the experience of that loving kindness. It's really, it gets in there in between the experience and it softens it so that you can stay with the examination and you see more clearly. Very important part 
So they are sister practices in that way. And then, again, you get to know it. You really get to know it. And you see all the same truths of, of that hindrance. And with both of these, you, you note again the, the, the pulling or the pushing. With aversion, there's a kind of uh, a pushing away in, in the energetic. Why I mention this is uh, many reasons. But one is that many times we don't know what's actually going on. So uh, you, the teacher says, well, how was your last sit? Fine, it was fine. So what was going on? Oh, not much. I was just watching the breath. Really? <laughs> really? And uh, or you may be upset, but you don't actually know if you want something or you want to get rid of something because you can't, you, you can't clearly see the energy. If you start to feel the, the experience of desire, the experience of aversion in the body, you start to know the state and it gives you more skill. And it deepens uh, your, your perspective in terms of the whole process. Now, when, when aversion in any given moment, because remember we are in a moment-to-moment practice, we're not some permanent state, it's moment-to-moment. When aversion, for whatever series of reasons, it's suddenly released, what is, what is available is a kind of clear wisdom because all of the energy of that aversion comes into the clear seeing. In uh, the Tibetan practice, it's, uh, it's one of the five Buddhist families, the Vajra, the, 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 the diamond wisdom. It's that clear seeing, that cut through illusion kind of seeing. So that's, that's, what, that's what can arise. And I was going to read you a poem. This is um, by Mary Oliver. And um, it's her moment in her life where, as she says, uh, the darkness was ripped from her eyes around a moment of aversion. It's called Singapore. In Singapore, in the airport, a darkness was ripped from my eyes. In the women's restroom, one compartment stood open. A woman knelt there, washing something in the white bowl. Disgust argued my stomach, and I felt in my pocket for my ticket. A poem should always have birds in it, kingfishers say, with their bold eyes and gaudy wings. Rivers are pleasant, and of course trees. A waterfall, or if that's not possible, a fountain rising and falling. A person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem. When the woman turned, I could not answer her face. Her beauty and her embarrassment struggled together and neither could win. She smiled and I smiled. What kind of nonsense is this? Everybody needs a job. Yes, a person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem. But first, we must watch her as she stares down at her labor, which is dull enough. She is washing the tops of the airport ashtrays, as big as hubcaps, with a blue rag. Her small hands turn the metal, scrubbing and rinsing. She does not work slowly nor quickly, 
but like a river. Her dark hair is like the wing of a bird. I don't doubt for a moment that she loves her life. And I want her to rise up from the crust and the slop and fly down to the river. This probably won't happen. But maybe it will. If the world were only pain and logic, who would want it? Of course it isn't. Neither do I mean anything miraculous, but only the light that can shine out of a life. I mean the way she unfolded and refolded the blue cloth, the way her smile was only for my sake. I mean the way this poem is filled with trees and birds. If we go deeper in looking at the arising of desire and aversion as hindrances, the two sides of the wanting mind, wanting to have something, wanting not to have something, we see that there's a little bit of um, mystery in just this experience because, in fact, we all already know these hindrances very well. So, why do they come? Why are they such a problem? Why is it that we so often fail to notice them? Why do we get so caught in them? Could it be that in part we, in fact, aren't prepared to give them up? Could it be in part that we're confused about what's to be given up? So how do they arise? In the mind, an object appears, an idea, the seeing of a dessert, a feeling in the knee on the cushion. It just appears. As it arises, there is a flavor with it of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. You can all see this for yourself. That arising is spontaneous. It is coupled. It is conditioned. It's not an absolute so that a a pleasant for one person might be unpleasant for another. But the flavoring is part of the experience. The pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. They are part of the experience. And so they arise. As they arise in the mind, because of this energetic quality, of the um, of, of the uh, desiring or the aversion, if if it's something pleasant, des- desire arises as a preference. I like this. I prefer to have it to not have it in this moment. And in that arising of that preference, that desire of preference, there is an energetic movement towards it or a pulling it towards you. If it's unpleasant, there is a preference that it go away. And that that arising of that preference has a pushing energy quality. It pushes away or a a rigid resisting on your part. This This is something that arises. Now, after that, a series of associations arises from our memory bank, 
we think of all these other times we've desired things or we think of this or that. We start imagining how we're going to keep this or all of these, what's called papancha mind. There's an explosion of other thoughts. And then we're lost in it. We're lost and we're, we're scheming how to keep our knee from hurting, how we're going to have the perfect sitting forever. It just goes on and on. There is a question of wherein comes the freedom. How do we, how do we transform this? I first was exposed to this in a way that it became a big issue for me back in the early 80s because I was sitting at Barry for a month with a teacher that was a very much a warrior kind of teacher. And he was saying, you know, you've got you've to get rid of desire. You've got to get rid of aversion. Just, just pounding it into our heads week after week. And I really started uh, examining this question for myself. And um, uh, I thought about it a lot. And like here, each morning there was a time to ask questions. And I had a question about this. But I didn't feel ready to answer, ask it. So those weeks passed. I went home. I, I went another year. And then I didn't go a year. And then finally I was ready to ask this question about this very question of where is freedom. And I said to him, this is in front of the whole group, 100 and some yogis sitting there. I said, when... I understand that, that when something arises, it's, it's pleasant or unpleasant. And I can imagine a being so purified that that pleasant or unpleasant might be just a faint, faint whisper that's hardly there and it's certainly not heavy enough to cause any action. But for we regular people, that, that arises automatically, as, as you've said. And then this preference comes and the preference seems to me to also have a certain automatic response. I don't really have that much choice about the preference. For instance, when I go down in the morning to have breakfast, I, there it was just going to the, the dining room, I, I see a banana, or I imagine there's going to be a banana and an apple. And in my mind, it, that when that thought's arisen, there is a, the, the, there's something pleasant this morning for whatever reason about the banana. And so I moved the preference of the banana. And then I get there. Oops, all the bananas are gone. So if I go, oh, the bananas are gone and I let loose of it, why isn't that freedom? He blew me away. Just completely dismissed my question. <laughs> did not treat it as a serious question at all. I, who had not spoken ever and never have since and asked the question, I, I was astounded. I had a five-alarm hindrance attack. My attachment to all of my thinking about this rose like crazy, and I was just... I was completely energized. My, my aversion to being treated this way arose. I had this scene in which uh, I, I could be a pretty forceful person. So I, I imagined this scene where, where I, I just came right back at him, right in the spot. I mean, it happened just like this. And I, I had enough of a sense of this particular person's weak spot, so I actually knew how to come back, you know, without knowing him at all. I just had this sense of this is how to do that. And, and then I, I felt this part in me go completely dead in terms of sloth and torpor. There was just some part of me just 
lost all energy. And another part got very, it was imagining this and that, this restless mind. And then I was filled with doubt. Well, maybe I don't understand any of this. Five alarm. <laughs> and so I then, uh, I then uh, took it all inside. And for years nursed this question on my own. For many, many years. And uh, only when I had in fact resolved it in terms of myself did I ever ask another teacher. I had only when I was not willing to actually ask another teacher. So I was around many teachers, Joseph, Jack, all of these teachers that I really respect, Sharon, and I never asked because it had become it had become so caught in my own stuff that the only way out was for myself. And finally I, I came to the conclusion that yes, this this is true. And I, I had all of these arguments about in science about the, the nervous system and about paramecians and all this stuff. So I go to Ajahn Sumaito and I go, you know, I'd really like to ask you a question and I'd like to have a private interview and ask a question. So he sets all this up and I, I say this and I say about preference. He goes, oh, sure. And I go, what? what, what don't you want to hear my arguments? He says, oh, sure. Preference just arises. He says, it's, it's, just, it, it's the attachment to that preference. Just don't just let loose of the attachment. Don't worry about that. It's sure it just arises. I was shocked. <laughs> and, and so it is with, with this kind of... Uh, of working with with these these hindrances, they they are. It's very mysterious. I had all of these reactions, and it propelled my own practice. All the hindrances arose, but in fact, there was nothing that teacher could have done that would have served me better, because in blowing me away, he in fact returned it to me. He was in fact a great spiritual friend. All of my judgment, all of my stuff that are all my aversion, all of that was just a confused state of mind. It was all of those mental factors arising. This happens to each of us all the time. While you're here at this retreat, thousands of times each day, desire arises. Thousands of times each day, aversion arises. We are constantly being buffeted by that experience. Some of them we notice because they're so big, but there are many times we don't notice. We stay and have that extra cup of tea, and it makes us a little late, so we rush up here to our cushion. So we sit on the cushion with a rushed tension in our body. We sit there, and immediately that tension starts to manifest in its body, in the body, and we're uncomfortable. Do we associate it with that arising of desire for that extra cup of tea? Not at all. We go, oh, I wish this wasn't happening in my body. We're lost in this. We don't realize in how all these subtle ways that the conditioning is, uh, is occurring by the arising of, 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 des- of desire and aversion. In relation to the question today about buying the car or where to put your, your child in, in public or private school, it is in this understanding of the, of the hindrances coming in the moment that is in the way of a clear decision. So yes, you make the wise decision. You bring skillful means. There's a whole uh, part of our practice called clear comprehension where we act as, we, we see as clearly as we can and then we act 
in terms of loving kindness and compassion. So, of course, you act. But you, you, you're acting without the attachment. Attachment to the outcome. Attachment to other people supporting your decision. Attachment without having to be reassured that you're right. Attachment without it even being right. You made the best decision you can. That's how we all live skillful lives. We do the best we can at this point, just as the tree in the storm. It's so simple. But we make it so complicated because of the hindrances and because of this papancha mind. Because not only do these hindrances arise, but then all these associations. Sloth and, and torpor are a, uh, and then restless mind are these, uh, these uh, responsive states. When, when, you're, when you're feeling sloth and torpor, there's this, you're, you're sleepy or there's this kind of this low-grade feeling of some kind. You can't stay awake. Or maybe it's just laziness. You don't really bring that concentration. You just sort of coast. Or you sit there, the fantasies start coming and they're pleasant. And you just, oh, that's nice. And so you just go with the fantasy. You don't even try to come back. That's, that's, that's the arising of sloth and, and torpor. They're actually two separate things. In the dictionary, the uh, uh, Oxford Dictionary, sloth is d- described as disinclination to action, while torpor is described as a state of inactivity. So you can actually, in a given moment, when, when that's arising, so what's going on here? Are you, just, are you disinclined to action? Are you really sort of avoiding something? Or is it more that you're just literally not awake? Now, uh, in restlessness, we know as this endless movement of the mind. They both come about from causes, either short-term or long-term. So sloth and torpor are present. You may, in fact, be tired because out of your wanting mind, you've pushed yourself way too much in your job and you come here exhausted. So it may be a physical, uh, but it has a cause. Or it may be that there's something you're resisting. Or there's just this habit of laziness that's come about because of wanting and aversion that developed as conditions. So when we, we go through the same steps of meeting sloth and torpor and restlessness as we do the other two, but we know they, they have a cause. And so we, we, can, we can look for that cause and we can, and, and we can, uh, we can move them in a different kind of way. They... they take their own course. And this is the good thing about them is on the retreat, the restless mind will come and go, sloth and torpor will come and go on on its own in a way that the the constant vigilance about desire and aversion catching us are are more more difficult. So they come and go. And when we work through sloth and torpor, there's a kind of groundedness that pervades everything when it's when we're free of that it's got a, it's a very strong ground when we work through the restlessness there's a real alertness to the mind because there it's these are just mental factors that are energetic states so we have that energy when we've worked through it in just a moment not permanently but just any moment we have access to that energy now we're constantly in the practice trying to balance the two if there's too much concentration and not enough alertness, we will get sleepy. So you can sit here this afternoon when it's really hot. You could really feel the heat. You could sort of narrow your focus in on the heat and you're asleep. 
On the other hand, if there's if because there wasn't enough there wasn't enough uh, alertness and curiosity, there wasn't enough mindfulness. On the other hand, you can be you can be uh, very mindful, but you don't have any concentration. So you're mindful of this, you're mindful of that, and you don't stay present long enough to actually. Uh, be able to harvest anything, to have to have any insight arise. There's too much movement for insight to arise. That's a lack of concentration. So uh, the, the the Buddha uh, described it as um, uh, tuning a, a, an stringed instrument, not too tight, not too loose. Your 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 these are your two things to adjust. Is there enough concentration? Is there enough mindfulness? Practice. And to not judge. You must remember the same things. It's not yours. It's not bad. Each of these hindrances, when we accept them, become the object of, of meditation. And in terms of choiceless awareness, they're as good as any other. It doesn't matter what our object is, as long as we are just present with it. There are no bad objects. No bad objects. Doubt is, uh, I heard once described as the mother of all hindrances because it is really a humdinger. The thing about it is that it cuts us off before we ever get started. So when doubt's present, we never make the move towards. We never, we never, we never attempt the practice. We get washed away by the doubt. It's likened to muddy water. It confuses the mind, and it can confuse the mind for outside activity, the doing of something, or the internal experience. It just confuses the mind. And it's a, um, uh, it's a very complicated thing to get to know because many times we have, we have actually got some of our wanting mind over in doubt. And we, we, uh, we basically don't want to let loose of something. And we experience it as doubt when, in fact, the truth is we just don't want to let loose. Or there's some aversion that we don't, if we sit and practice, we think, oh, we're going to have all this pain or we're going to lose our, our personality or something. And so there's this, there's this tremendous aversion. But we don't actually experience that aversion. We just, there's just this feeling of doubt. Many, many layers that the uh, doubt can also be, be moving uh, over and so that there's a, Doubt can take the form of sloth and torpor so that you're sleepy. There's a sort of resistance. And it's really doubt that's manifesting. Or your mind's very active. It's so active because you don't trust anything. So it's, it's something to get to know over a long period of time, not all at once. I would like to close with this poem by T.S. Eliot in dealing with doubt. It's from the four quartets. And it's the most powerful statement of recent times in terms of how each of us to deal with that. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love. For love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the answer.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.